and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager of Owl Explains, and I am super excited to share this special episode with you. This episode comes from one of the panels we recently hosted at the Avalanche Summit in Barcelona, our first in-person event as Owl Explains, in which we gathered many wise owls from all over the world seeking to build a better internet. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Hello. So we're going to be talking about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Pretty much, I'd say virtually every central bank right now is doing some sort of research pilot program or actually working to introduce some variation of a central bank digital currency. And as, as, a, as someone in, in crypto, you know, we're very conscious of how that is going to interplay with the the private style public uh, cryptos that we have and what it means for the kind of autonomy and freedom and privacy and just how uh, what we've been seeing lately, at least in the U.S. with a lot of the the, the regional banks and collapse in the uh, wholesale and retail uh, versions of it. So basically, we're going to get to the bottom of the future of CBDCs. So uh, would the panel like to introduce themselves? Sure, I'll go first. Um, I'm Jenna Pache. I'm the policy lead and one of the originating team members behind the Digital Pound Foundation, um, which is a not-for-profit corporate membership organization um, in the UK. Um, we advocate for the implementation of what we call well-designed digital pound in both publicly issued, so CBDC, and privately issued, so all the different stable coins and tokenized commercial bank money and all that interesting stuff, um, forms, and a diverse, effective, and competitive ecosystem for these new forms of digital money. Um, hola. Buenas tardes, soy de, de aquí, um, but I work for the Department of Finance in Ireland, so I've actually lived abroad for, for a few years. My name is Maya Santamaria. It's a dream come true to be in Barcelona, talking about blockchain, so uh, two of my loves together. I uh, started looking at blockchain a few years ago. I try to advise governments not to do silly things, but to pay attention to um, reality and to private sector. Um, just want to point out, I'm speaking for myself today, so don't be saying any of my silliness or comments actually on behalf of the uh, of the finance minister, or you get me fired. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Thanks. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Varun Paul. I'm Director for Central Bank Digital Currencies and Market Infrastructures at Fiveblocks. Um, I've been at Fiveblocks for a year, and before that, I spent my career at the Bank of England. So as a central banker um, starting my career, I've worked on financial stability, I've worked on monetary policy, and I've worked on central bank digital currencies from a central bank perspective as well. Great. So let me just start with, let's try to sell me on what's the, the pros and cons, starting with the pros of a CBDC. So, so like, Jenna, tell me about why we need the, the, the digital pound and what kind of benefits it would have, at least for, for retail that isn't currently being served by, you know, our credit card system or other digital currency and payments? Um, that's a really good question. And um, when when we start talking about CBDCs or digital pound, one of the first questions many people ask is, well, like, why, why do we need a 
you know, a CBDC or a digital pound? Isn't the money that we use today, after all, digital um, in itself? I mean, we're not, most of us are not regularly transacting with cash anymore. Um, and so most of our transactions involve digital movements from one ledger to another effectively um, between our banks. Um, and the answer is yes, that's true. I mean, at the end of the day, wheelbarrows full of cash are not being exchanged between banks. And yet all of the payments infrastructure that we have today um, was ultimate, you know, was has evolved organically over um, decades and fundamentally at the outset was based on assumptions that wheelbarrows full of cash were being exchanged at the end of the day. And many of the processes, the assumptions, um, and the um, the kind of inhibitions of this stuff have the limitations have been introduced or have been um, have have been carried over through these kind of legacy assumptions, um, and so what new forms of digital money, and I'm not going to say just CBDCs, because new forms of digital money in all forms, whether they're stable coins or um, CBDCs. What they represent is an opportunity to relook at what the requirements that we have today of money and of payments are, um, to kind of tear up the assumptions that we have, um, and to say, what can we do using the technology that we have available today to meet those requirements, both now and into the future as we transition to a digital economy? Um, in a digital native manner. And that's basically what digital money is. And CBDC in this context is the publicly issued, so the central bank issued form of digital money. I was just gonna say, it's funny you ask that question, right? Why do we need CBDCs? If I turned to this room and said, why do we need crypto? Yeah. What a stupid question, right? Uh, huge opportunities. Why wouldn't you explore them? Different types of payment, different types of ways of transacting. For me, just to add on to Jana's point, CBDCs are just part of that ecosystem. Um, and they can build and build a platform for further innovation. And that's a, an opportunity you can't miss. Right. But I just maybe it's not just about payments, if that's okay. Um, I agree with both of you, but maybe I'll go a bit further and maybe be controversial. And I think that in honor of being today the 4th of May, um, clearly, <laughs> and for those who may have seen um, <laughs> Clone Wars, um, Duchess Kirze did say the money is the most dangerous weapon in the universe. This is not just about payment. This is about really money and who's entitled to actually own that money. I mean, payments, yes, they have evolved slowly over the last 20, 30 years. So have regulation. But intermediation costs have not reduced one cent over that period of time. So it's definitely primed, I think, for challenging and for revolution in the aspect. Right. So, like, I understand uh, we have the, the they're working on the Fed now and these more more wholesale versions of, you know, how are you going to move money? We've seen recently with these bank failures, they couldn't bail them out in time. They had to wait for like 9 a.m. to get the, the boring old system going. My question is about when it's like the, the retail CBDC stuff. And because I'm look, I look at it from, oh, well, you know, I'm a, I believe in what, what do I like about cryptocurrency? It's that. You have the power and the autonomy, or you the privacy. Uh, you control the funds. There's no, you know, centralized permission party doing it. So 
I'm wondering how you respond, you know, those that are in favor of, you know, this kind of retail CBDC. You can see right now, like the two opposition candidates in the U.S., um, uh, the governor of Florida and uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., they're both coming out really, it's like a, a big political thing now. You wouldn't even think, you wouldn't think it'd be such a, a big deal, but they're making a lot of political hay out of uh, being anti-CBDC, putting these laws in place, saying, oh, we're not going to adhere to this because they're, they're, they're running on this fear of a, a China-style uh, central authority saying, you know, this is, this is what you can do with your money, this is what you can't, here's the limits, so we're going to prevent a bank run by limiting how you use it. So is that a justified fear? And if are we looking to, to do these retail versions of, of CBTCs where the, the, the citizens are going to be beholden to the central government, it's going to be telling them what they can do with it and not even getting into the, the, the privacy and the security of what they're purchasing with their own money? I'll take that. It's funny when you ask that question, and people ask this all around the world, and we take a global perspective here. The US is quite specific in this respect. This respect. There's a real lack of trust for the government, um, a real concern from citizens about the state spying on them. Uh, and some countries really have that issue. When you have this debate in Europe, uh, in the UK, there feels like people trust the guardrails a little bit more, whether it is because of GDPR and the conversations we've had in the last decade over privacy of data and the responsibilities of any financial institution, any entity, including the government, um, to, to protect citizens' data. I think we can have a really, uh, a much more advanced debate. The, the UK's uh, CBDC consultation paper hit this head on, and it basically said, the reason to have a retail CBDC, one, is because you need something at the base of the economy, an anchor between all different types of money to ensure that when you're exchanging from one type of money in a private uh, a bank or a crypto, it is based on one central form of money that is uniform. So uniform is your money. The second thing they said is, the risk is as we move from cash, which is provided by the state, to money that is provided by institutions with incentives to monetize your data, as we've seen in the Web2 world from the social media um, giants, um, we're moving to a world in which they have an incentive to take that data and use it. And what the central bank is saying is that actually we want to deliver a token, a currency that is devoid from that risk. And we're saying we're going to provide you with a privacy coin. And we're going to say this is not anonymous, but it protects your privacy. And it is going to be simple and basic. It's not going to do clever stuff, but it's going to ensure, ensure that you trust this thing. And then we, the, the clever financial institutions and uh, innovators out there can build much smarter things on top of that. But the responsibility of the government and the central bank is to provide that basis. Can I, yeah. Um, so going back to you, first of all, I agree with everything Bern just said. Um, but also, I mean, I think there, the concerns that people have around privacy and about the extent to which um, a central bank digital currency, especially if it's programmable, could be used as a means of, you know, controlling um, their access to, to finance or to benefits or to society in general are valid. I mean, that's exactly pretty much what's happening in China at the moment. Um, but it's also reflective, I think, of the Chinese state and the system of government that exists and the degree of control that it wants to exert. And in many ways, the design of a CBDC is a kind of, you know, manifestation of a, a jurisdiction's values and stuff like that and its political values. And so 
That's why we expect to see in a digital euro or a digital pound a reflection of privacy protections, um, of you know individual control over finances and things like that. Um, and in a lot of cases as well, I think that some of the concerns that people have arise from not fully grasping how the existing financial system works. And I really don't mean that in a patronizing way, because until I started diving into a lot of this, I didn't really know how it all hung together in terms of money and payments and, and things like that, and what commercial bank money is versus central bank money and things like that. Um, I think that it's the, the way, for example, the digital pound is proposed to be designed um, and the level of access that the government versus the central bank would potentially have to the data attached to that would be very much reflective of the existing system that exists today for like commercial bank accounts and stuff like that. Um, also, it always surprises me that people are incredibly suspicious of what the government might get up to. But, you know, when it comes to private companies, um, you know, if Facebook had launched Libra, I bet actually a surprising number of people in this room might be using it. Yeah. On, on that point, sorry. I mean, this is obviously a UK. You're not ganging up against me. I know it's just happened this way. Um, there's a UK point. There's a, a US point of view. Um, just a quick row of hands. How many people here actually are based in Europe and have a Europe bank account? Quite a few, right? Okay, that's great. In Europe, and that's I'm speaking from experience and from I'm see what I've seen. Yes, it's about money. Yes, it's about payments. Yes, it's about privacy. Yes, it's about our data. Really, and make no mistake, it's about power and it's about monetary sovereignty. Because, and very clearly, we don't have a European credit card, uh, credit card uh, supplier. It's either Visa or Mastercard, right? They are not European based. We don't have large social media providers that control our data in Europe, they are US-based. Um, Nika, as you know, has a regulation to actually control stable coins. This was a monetary sovereignty power, well, a protection play to actually not have a private company issuing money in Europe. So I understand, and I think those are peripheral and important, but I think in terms of seeing it through, it, was, it will, Will a retail or digital euro exist? It will, maybe. Is there a need for it? I would say at our citizens' level, I'm sure you guys pay with your Revolut accounts and your Bizooms and whatever else. Maybe we don't need them, but we might need them from a power monetary sovereignty just to protect that, um, that purchasing power European level, which sometimes is not spoken about. Right. Would you think, does... Is this gonna? Is the aim to replace cash? Is it can it coexist with stable coins and these, you know, decentralized? Yeah, because you know the 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 conspiracy theory that the, the the Florida kind of point of view that I'm coming from, it feels really like the U.S. government has been trying to delegitimize and push crypto to the side, maybe in an attempt, and and even doing it to regional banks to kind of push them away so that they can come in and have control over the system with a CBDC style federal, you know, Federal Reserve style control, uh, the central banking control that is taking the decentralized and smaller regional banks out of the picture. Is this, is that, is there any truth to this or is this just kind of how it feels? I have a theory that, that's my theory that I'm trying to think about it anyway, that we have evolved in our transport system because we've adapted the 
the means of transport to the distance and the speed to which we want to get to, right? If you wanted to get an electric scooter and go from here to, to New York City, you could do it. I'm not saying you, you, know, you couldn't do it, but you're more likely to jump in a plane, right? Because it's faster. Um, there is coexistence, I think, in different uh, forms of money. We just have been stuck with just cash and digital money to a certain degree with the commercial money. Why can we have a spectrum of different digital and cash needs to pay depending on the situation? Right. I see more coexistence personally than a, than a complete replacement because there's never going to be a, a perfect replacement. I don't know what you guys have other thoughts. Completely agree. It's a vibrant ecosystem in the future for me. Um, there may be consolidation over time as some form of, forms of payment and transaction and store of value change, but we've, we've had various types of payments and we've seen this shift in the last two or three decades significantly from cash to other forms. The beauty here is we've got an interaction between um, state-issued, government-issued uh, CBDCs in the future, privately issued stable coins, uh, and they can be issued by a, a non-bank, uh, fintech, and then you can have bank-issued monies that we're calling tokenized deposits these days. But that is essentially what the financial system looks like today. When a central bank issues money, the banknote in our wallets, if we have any, um, that is one type of money. And if you go to the government, go to the central bank and say, I want something in return for this, it is their responsibility, their liability. So if the whole banking system fails, you still go back to that central bank. As we saw in the, in the runs of the banks in the last few weeks, when you're issued money, when you have money sitting in a bank account, that is a liability of that bank. And so all these different types of money have different risks associated with them and different benefits associated with them. And I genuinely foresee a future where these things do interact and they do provide different benefits. Um, and, and I can see how they, they can build a layer on top of each other. And you can have privately, private ecosystems where money floats around for settlement in certain subnets. And you can have stable coins that exist uh, to access other DeFi pools and so on. And they will have different uses. But the beauty of it, ideally, is interoperability of these different types. And that will be great for the consumer. Yeah, going back to your original question, Russell, um, I mean, I, I think that, as my mentioned as well, different jurisdictions have very different drivers from a policy perspective as to why they want to introduce the CBDC. Um, like the world's first live CBDC was the sand dollar in the Bahamas. Um, I think they've got something like 700 small islands. Um, it's an incredible logistical challenge to distribute cash to ATMs across all of those islands. And so for them, it was like an important way of uh, modernizing their payments infrastructure and giving retaining people's individual user like citizens access to public money um, so a digital form of cash for example um, the Bakong in um, Cambodia which is more of a synthetic CBDC but let's gloss over that distinction right now um, it was actually introduced because Cambodia is a heavily dollarized economy the dollar is pretty much used in almost all day-to-day -day transactions and Cambodia wanted to regain its own monetary sovereignty by introducing something that was easy for the population to use in the same way as the dollar and that was accessible, they hoped that this would be the outcome. So really different drivers. I mean, like the e-NERA in Nigeria was about financial inclusion. Um, I would think if the US were thinking of introducing a CBDC so that it could control the fates of regional state banks, that would be a poor policy driver and possibly not a huge signal for success. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I see a real difference in the the aims of the CBDC for the big uh, big countries like the U.S. and then the the smaller ones that are trying to you know establish their own control without just. Like, but it, it's kind of like so you got El Salvador, you know, they they had the dollar and then they tried to introduce the Bitcoin being being their their version of a, the, the legal tender. But then the, the the Nigerian example you just explained, when I was kind of researching this, it seemed like that was like a flop. Like they had a real trouble getting adoption. And w w is is there a reason that is that true? Is is that something that wouldn't apply to these to these European style versions of it? Well, my understanding from from looking at developments on CBDCs around, around the world, that the um, lack of huge success on the Naira was actually due to the lack of trust in the central bank, yeah. which is, you know, actually um, the uh, there was an update as well on, on the digital yuan, and uh, they were very open about how usage has decreased just because maybe there isn't that trust isn't there so it's quite interesting that in that particular case there was a lack of trust in what the central bank would do with the data yeah and it, it, it seems like here like they're saying you know one of the reasons i think there's it's an uphill battle in in the u.s is they're saying well this will help you know bank the unbanked and provide but the the reality is the the very few americans that don't have bank accounts or whatever they don't trust the the banks as they are and they're definitely not going to trust Especially now that it's being turned into a, a political, uh, it's a political issue. And of course, like I said, it's the both the, the Republican challenger and the Democrat. Uh, absolutely right. Let me just challenge that a little bit. There are 14 million Americans without bank accounts. It's not a small number, um, and they they will have reasons for not doing that. Will they subscribe to a central bank issued digital currency? Probably not. But could you then have a stablecoin issued by a fintech that they might be willing to engage with? It's not a technology problem in the whole in the U.S. It may be a bit of uh, internet connectivity. Sorry, you're going to go in. And don't don't we need a good like ID system? Wouldn't that is that required? And like I'm wondering, do do we have the developing the developer tech talent to to create this? Do they, do the yeah. governments have that? This is really interesting. So India is a really good example here. India is the biggest country in the world from population. And they rolled out a, a, a really world-class payment system built on an identity system <coughs> and a data system in a matter of years. And they did it from the center and everyone, one way or another, everyone's got behind it. And you've included a huge swathe of the population that were otherwise unbanked and uh, un, 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 unincluded, financially unincluded. You could do these, and countries where they have digital IDs because they already have trust have been able to accelerate this adoption. In Europe, in the UK, well, so in the UK and the US, there's no chance of having an ID card. Um, but forms of digital ID could really enable adoption. If you use, and I think you can use blockchain technology to do this, where you're sharing uh, items, uh, attributes of your identity in a way that the individual has more control over, can really enable you to say, I trust the data I'm giving up and I, I can see what data I'm giving up and there are reasons for that. And then you could build a, a financial system that doesn't require you to have a bank in order to have access to digital money. It, it does require you to have some technology and maybe it's a smartphone. Um, and that won't work in every country, but in the US it would work. Um, and, and equally, when you look at this around the world, developing countries trying to solve their own problems, some of them turn around and say, this isn't going to work for me. My biggest risk is uh, natural disasters, and if I have no technology, no electricity, and no mobile phone signal, this just will not work. And then there's loads of innovation about offline payments. And actually, this is something that's really interesting. 
there's very little research in the crypto world on offline payments, as far as I'm aware. Mm. But the central bank world is focused laser sharp on this idea that it needs to be an alternative to banknotes. And in a world where there is a tsunami, there is a natural disaster, I need something that people can reliably pay on, even if they don't have electricity or phone signal. That's, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, actually, that tsunami point was a bit, or um, yeah, around offline payments. Apparently, that's been a big driver in New Zealand recently of them looking into um, CBDC because they had a really big storm, um, kind of wiped out connectivity in some local areas and stuff like that. They couldn't get in to distribute cash or anything. Um, so yeah, I think they're just bringing a load of things that we've been talking about together. Um, you know, they're in particularly in more um, in in jurisdictions that have really well developed payment systems and banking systems and stuff. There's a question of like, do we really need to be looking at this now? What kind of marginal benefit are we going to get out of it? Is it really worth the effort? Um, are we just doing this because China's doing it? And the my my I've I've given up on all the other arguments. It's like actually no, the benefits to our payment system today are probably quite marginal. But why should we be spending the money? Because China's doing it. Because we should all be looking to the future and to what the jurisdictions who are putting a lot of efforts into developing these technologies and these new forms of money will be able to do with their payment systems and their money in five or ten years' time that we won't be able to do today and. How how that's going to affect like the geopolitical balance of the power in the world and stuff on that happy note <laughs> all right any any other 40 second last words um, I agree with both um, I do think that from a digital identity will be absolutely crucial and um, I always go back to the Twitter blue tick we didn't think we needed it now we don't have it we don't pay we totally miss it and um, we don't trust that account anymore and I think when if there is to be a solution on, on a CBDC level, we definitely will have to come up with a digital idea, ID, sorry, um, form of trust and comfort. Um, whoever cracks it first, I think they're, they're sitting on a gold mine. My, my final word is, it's a really exciting space to be in. There's so much going on all around the world and I'm really excited by some of the, not the largest economies, but the kind of the G20 economies, which with massive scale, which I'm really taking this seriously, and there's a whole bunch of innovation and the beauty of it is it's working with the crypto world and the governments and central banks. And I think that can be, can be really exciting. Thanks so much. That was great. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hopeful and hype-free resources, visit OwlExplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.